Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. If I were to ask you what the most famous prayer in the Bible was, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? You can blurt it out loud. The Lord's Prayer, all right? which is pretty, pretty standard, I think, answer. Is there another one that's, that stands out to you? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that was something that was prayed every day. Anything else? All right, the Ephesians prayer. Anything in particular about it? Just the Pauline... Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's the it's the whole it's the whole pattern of prayer that they have in the Ephesians prayer, no doubt. Okay. Anything else? The twenty third Psalm, which any Psalm is a prayer, right? I mean, if you if you know that that's kind of what they were written for. They were written for worship and for prayer, and people would pray the Psalms over and over again. So the twenty third Psalm. We're going to actually come to a psalm here in just a second. Not the 23rd. Yeah, it's pretty good too. There's a bunch of them. Like, you can, you know, I like Psalm 40, and I like it because you too actually did a cover of it. Did you know that? Their song 40 is actually Psalm 40. Sing this with me. This is 40. That's my impersonation of. Never mind. Should I go on after that? <laughs> no, no, cut it off. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks for saving me on that, Jonathan, because I almost sung it. So, anyway, there's a lot of popular or famous prayers, but there's one that I really thought y'all would mention that no one's mentioned yet. Yeah, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're going to look at that prayer today, the Gethsemane prayer. But really what we're going to look at is the context of that prayer. So this sermon series is 24 hours that changed the world. And it's loosely based on the outline, not the specifics, but the outline of a book and a series done by Adam Hamilton called 24 Hours That Changed the World. Today we're going to look at the garden. But what's important is we understand the context of the garden. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark 14. And we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 42, but we're going to be skipping chunks of that just for time's sake. But to understand the context of this prayer that Jesus has, we need to back up and look a little bit at what we talked about last week, which was the Last Supper. So at the end of the Last Supper, at the end of this meal that we talked about that was that was really the Passover meal that celebrated the coming out of Egypt and the setting free from slavery and the new life in the new land and this new, uh, this new era in the, in the history of the Israelites. It was All of this was wrapped up in this, that God set them free and redeemed them. And so all of that was kind of in the background as Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples. And he broke tradition, and we talked about that last week and what was important about that. But then we come 
to the end of the Passover meal. And at the end of the Passover meal, there was a common prayer that was the halal psalms, which are Psalms 113 through 118. And halal is the base word for hallelujah, which means praise be to God. And so these psalms are praise prayers, to Dan's point, or praise songs that were sung at the end of the Passover meal. So understand that Jesus shares in the Passover meal, and at the very end, as he's transitioning from this meal to then walking across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane where he will pray, they are singing these psalms, and this is the last psalm that they would have sung together. Psalm 118. Listen to these words. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his chesed, his steadfast love, endures forever. Let all Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Then he goes on and he names the different parts, Aaron and and all of Israel. And then he says in verse 5, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. Now you know why it was the the end of the Passover meal, right? Because that's a description of what God did for the Israelite people. Out of their distress, they called on the Lord and he answered and he set them free. But this is what Jesus has just sung and is praying with his disciples as they walk towards the garden. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put trust in princes. Then he goes on in the rest of that psalm to talk about how the nations were trying to destroy him and how his life was going to be put to ruin. This is what it says in Psalm 118. And then we get to this place towards the end of Psalm 18 or at the middle of it where he says, but I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So that's the context That's the prayer, that's the song they were singing as Jesus knows he is walking towards his final hours of freedom. He's acknowledging through this psalm that God is good and that he's larger than my situation and that he's bigger than what I'm about to go through. And even though man put me to death, my salvation is in God. I trust in him above anybody else. And so God, uh, I mean, so Jesus is singing this about the Father, and he's singing this as he's getting ready to go to the Gethsemane. That's an extremely important part of understanding the context of what Jesus is going through. He has sung this psalm that gives him hope, even in his darkest hour. Even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, then he will fear no evil. Verse 26, and when they had sung that hymn... They went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, to get to the Mount of Olives from where Jesus was, you had to pass through a valley. 
and it's the Kidron Valley. And it separates the Temple Hill and Temple Mount part of Jerusalem. There's a little valley, and then on the other side of the valley is the other side of the Kidron Valley were olive groves. There were uh, tombs over on that side of the Kidron Valley that you could see from the temple. It was, uh, it was like looking from here to, I don't know, to the corner down there. It's not very far away. The, the valley is deep, but you come right back out of it. So they're crossing this Kidron Valley, and as they're crossing, they have a discussion. Now, here's what's interesting about the Kidron Valley and where Jesus is going. Well, actually, there's a number of things. First off, the week as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he stops with the Kidron Valley between him and the gates of the city, which were the beautiful gates, which looked right onto the temple as the temple would have shined in the sun. And it's at that point that Jesus stops and weeps over the city. It's also the place where David, when he's fleeing from his sons that are trying to kill him, he stops, he runs out of the city, comes across the, down the Kidron Valley and back up to the Mount of Olives, and he stops, and he cries in distress over the destruction that is about to happen to his nation and perhaps to him, but more importantly for him, even his family is crumbling apart. That's this spot. The Kidron Valley is also the place where the final judgment is said to take place. Now, all of this comes into play here. This is an important part or place, geography. It's an important place in the city or in the area of Jerusalem. And Jesus taps into that as he continues with his disciples. Because this is what he says to them. And Jesus said to them, you will fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So let me stop here because this is important to understand. The word for fall away there is not to just turn your back on. It's to turn your back on in fear and disgust. Let that sit in. Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to turn away from me for fear and disgust. You're going to be fearful that what's going to happen to me is going to happen to you, and you're going to be disgusted at how I'm treated and how you might be treated, and you're going to be so fearful and disgusted that you're going to want to put as much distance from me as possible. When I picture this, I picture a scene from like, you know, I don't know, a scary movie, when Freddy comes out or whoever comes out and the person goes, <gasps> and they start running and it's disgusting. You know, he takes his mask off and his face is melted or whatever and it's disgusting and scary and he's running away. That's kind of what this word means. This word is like a Hollywood movie kind of scene word. They run from here from him in fear and disgust. So Jesus says to his best friends, to the people who are supposed to be supporting him, to his crew, to his squad, as I talked about last week, and he says, you're about to all turn away from me in fear and disgust. But, and that's a big but, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
So Jesus says, you're about to abandon me, but I'm going to forgive you. Do you catch that? He doesn't say the words forgive, but that's what he implies, right? You're about to abandon me. You're going to turn away from me in fear and disgust, but we're going to still come together. I'm going to invite you back in. So think about all of this context. He has sung now about how God is the only one he can trust and how God's going to protect him even in the face of death. They have all sung about the faithfulness of God. And then they pass through the Kidron Valley. And as they're going through this place of judgment, Jesus tells them, y'all are about to fail and fail miserably, but that's okay because I got your back. But Peter said to him, even though they all turn away in disgust and fear from you, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then they continue, they go to Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. If you translate it literally, it means olive press. There is a place on the side of the Kidron, I mean on the side of the Mount of Olives, where you are looking at Jerusalem and the temple specifically and the beautiful gate, which was called the beautiful gate because it literally was beautiful. Absolutely breathtaking, stunning. And it was the gate into the city with just behind it the temple. It was this phenomenal picture. It's gorgeous. And if you ever get a chance to go to Israel and stand on the Mount of Olives and look across, you can imagine just how beautiful that would have been. But it's there that Jesus takes his disciples to pray. Again, that's the place where the final judgment seat is supposed to be. It's the place where Jesus wept over the city just a week before. It's the place where David wept as he abandoned the city and left in fear. It is a place known through all of Israel's history as an important piece of property. And Jesus stops there on this night to pray in the garden this olive garden. By the way, again, if you go there, there's olive trees there that some say have been there since the time of Jesus. They're thousands of years old. We don't know that for a fact. But it's incredible. And I can imagine what it must have been like in the middle of the night with no noise except the sounds of night and the stars up above. And Jesus gathered there with his disciples in the garden. Why garden? Why was it garden? Not rhetorical. Why did Jesus choose to pray in a garden? The floor is open. That's where it all started. Think about that for a second. There's no mistake here. Jesus does this for a reason. It's a beautiful bookend. It all started in a garden. It all went badly wrong in a garden. God created humanity and placed him in perfection and in this garden. He gave life in the garden. He created all life in a garden. And then sin entered the garden. And the garden distorted and destroyed and it was never the same 
all because of the first Adam. But Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus has come now as a new humanity. He has come to set things right. So he shows up in a garden, and where in the first garden there was temptation and failure, Jesus now prays in a garden. And how many times does he pray? How many temptations were there in the initial garden? In the initial garden, the temptation, the three temptations that were described that Adam felt were all his reasons for sinning. So three temptations, three failures. And Jesus is seen here in the garden, three times he prays, three times his disciples fell, but three times he prays the same prayer. It started in a garden and it ended badly there, but Jesus is now in a new garden and he's saying, I'm starting life over. I'm hitting reset. I am doing what the first Adam couldn't do. And so Jesus takes them to a garden. And he says to them, sit here while I pray. Verse 33, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to, great, to be greatly distressed and troubled. I'm going to stop here for a second. Why did he take Peter, James, and John? Not rhetorical. Why did he take Peter, James, and John? All the other disciples, he was like, y'all chill here and pray. Y'all be good here. We're going to go up here a little bit further, and y'all three come with me. By the way, they did use the word y'all. I'm dead serious. They used the second person plural. They actually had a word for second person plural like we do. It wasn't you and you, which is the silliest thing in the world. Y'all is perfectly good, right? I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So they had the word y'all. Or if you're from places, it's usins or whatever. But they had the, <laughs> they had the word y'all. So Jesus would have said, hey, y'all three, come with me. Why those three? Okay, those were the disciples he was closest to. Those were the ones that he had invested most in. Those were the ones that we see every time there's this major kind of break, he's with those three. He took those three to another mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, where they saw his glory as they prayed together. This was his inner circle, his really tight crew. They Say that again. Yeah. So what else? Anything else that you can think of? Why these three? That's the main reason. But there's a second reason. One of them is Peter. And the other two were brothers. James and John. Just a few chapters ahead, what did James and John's mother ask for? Yes. Their sons to sit at the right hand. She was asking, whenever it's about to happen, because she thought Jesus was going to roll into Jerusalem and take over and set up a kingdom, like a literal kingdom, like I'm coming in and kicking Rome out, and we're going to be the real deal now, and we're going to be the superpower. That's what they thought. So she said, hey, when that happens, 
Would you let my sons be in places of, of, of importance and power? And Jesus said, can they drink this cup that I have to drink? Can they go through with what I'm about to go through? And their answer was, yeah, we can do that. Fast forward to just a little while ago. Just verses we just read. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I'll drink that cup. I'll go through with what you're going through. So not only were they his tightest crew, but they were also overconfident in their ability. They were overconfident in what they thought was about to happen. They were overconfident in themselves. So he takes these three with him, and he begins to pray. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell onto the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now understand, this is happening right around midnight. These guys had spent, because Passover meals would go on for hours. They had spent hours together, sitting around, eating, sipping on wine. It was late at night, and they were tired. They were tired from the late night, they were tired from the wine, they were tired from the full meal that went on for hours. They were worn out. And so their flesh was literally, they were tired. And Jesus is begging them, just stay up and watch, but they can't do it because they are human. They are weak, even though they think they are strong. They will scatter, even though they think they will go to death with him. And this is the lesson for us. If you are confident in anything, you're wrong. Because there is nothing in this life that you should be confident about outside of the work and the power of Christ in you. Because all things can fail. Now, I'm not saying don't be confident. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. That's a double negative, by the way. I'm not telling you not to be confident in who you are, not to be confident in your abilities. What I'm saying is, don't put all your trust and your faith in them. Don't overvalue what you can do, particularly when it comes to life decisions, particularly when it comes to faith decisions. The three thought, oh yeah, we got this, we'll... Man, everything's going to be good. We got your back, Jesus. And they failed. But here's the good news, right? Even in their failure, Jesus is choosing to love them. Even in their failure, he's right there lifting them back up. He's right there encouraging them. He's right there saying, you're going to fail, but I'm still going to forgive you. You're going to scatter, but I'm going to bring you back together in Galilee. You're going to abandon me, but I'm not abandoning you. And in so doing, he's saying, you're going to fail, 
but it's okay because I'm bigger than your failures. You're going to put all your trust in yourself, but I've got something better for you. Guys, I don't know what you rest on and rely on. It might be if you've got money in your, in your bank account, that's when you feel comfortable. It might be when you have control of a situation that that's when you feel comfortable. It might be that when, uh, when the stock market's good, that's when you're comfortable. It might be when gas prices are low, that's when you're comfortable. I don't know what it is, but right now your world is upside down, I guarantee you. But even if it's not upside down with all the exterior stuff, oftentimes it's upside down and you just don't realize it. And what, what I think this passage teaches us is that when everything is out of control and nothing feels right, or when you are overconfident in yourself and you think you've got this, there's something bigger and better. So if you're in fear, trust God. If you're trusting yourself, that's going to fail you. Trust God. And so Jesus, what he's, what he's doing with his disciples is even in this last moments of his freedom, he's trying to teach them and show them what it means to be his followers. And it says that, and again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping with their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping? Take your rest. Taking your rest. It is enough. Stop. Wake up. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinner. Rise. Let us be going see my betrayers at hand. How many of us, like those disciples, are stumbling around in slumber, thinking that we've got this, confident in our own abilities, confident in our power in our bank account, confident in our abilities to get things done, confident in our ability to talk ourselves out of things. Man, I was a cocky middle schooler because I thought I could talk my way out of anything. There were a couple of belt traps that taught me differently. I don't know what you're confident in, but if it's anything but Christ, it's not enough. But on the flip side of that, when you fail and you will fail, Jesus is saying, but I've got you. Adam couldn't handle it, so Jesus became the second Adam. The first garden was a miserable failure. The second garden is where all of humanity got a reset. Precisely at the point when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And ultimately, that's where we're called to live. Not in my strength, not in my abilities, not in what I've accumulated, not in degrees on the wall, not in experiences I've, I, that I've had, not in my knowledge of theology or lack of knowledge of theology, not in my will, but yours. 
Jesus is inviting you into a garden. And you get to choose. Sleep or surrender. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.